So I know I've talked a lot uh, about living in Kenya. Uh, that was a significant part of my life. And, uh, and so I apologize if you're tired of me talking about it. But there's one thing that's been on my mind recently as I've thought about one of the things I, I saw and experienced in Kenya that was very different from the U.S., or at least on the surface it was. It was the way that everybody kind of understood that politicians are corrupt. Like it's, it's just kind of a normal part of life in Kenya that, that politicians, when they're in power, they, they just seem to, to kind of flaunt their power or, or even the corruption is just barely under the surface at all. And so for example, uh, it's just known in Kenya that if you're a political leader that you live an extravagant life, you've got wealth, you've got power, and you, you use it. Uh, anytime someone was recently elected, they would always uh, get in their cars and do a little caravan through Nairobi, stopping traffic everywhere just so that they could show off the fact that they now have the power to do that. Uh, and and probably a lot more darkly, these political leaders in, in Kenya would very often uh, stoke r tribal and racial resentments and stereotypes and stuff like that as a way of keeping themselves in power. They would, they would, it, was, it was almost shameless the way that they would uh, use their tribe or their, their background to try to put down others and keep themselves in power. And all of this was very foreign to me, but, but it was very common for my Kenyan friends to talk about this. And one of the things that they would say is that there was an expression that, that sort of encapsulated the mentality of these corrupt politicians. And the expression was, it's my time to eat. It's my time to eat. The, the backdrop being, look, I, you know, I was poor or my family was poor or my tribe has been downtrodden, but now that I'm in power, it's my time to eat. I'm going to use this power. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to look out for me and mine, right? It's my time to eat. Now, the problem with this mentality, of course, is that having that kind of a perspective, it's my time to eat, it always comes at the expense of other people. It's always at the expense of others. It's, it's like these, these leaders are, in, in a way, at war with the world, because everyone around them, if, if you're saying it's my time to eat, it means that everybody around you is either an enemy to be defeated who's standing in your way or a victim to exploit. And so it's a posture of, of clenched fists at war with the world. And what I got to see with my own eyes and begin to understand is that there is a continuum that begins with selfishness and ends with violence. The continuum goes like this. It's selfishness, which leads to corruption, which, which leads to injustice, which leads to hatred, which leads to violence. It, it's all connected. It's a continuum. And what I saw just a couple years after I lived in Kenya is I saw that this, this, this continuum came to reality in a really terrible way. In 2007, uh, the presidential elections ended in a time of, of terrible violence. And everybody was surprised because Kenya is one of the more developed countries in, in East Africa. And yet, after the, the elections, all of these racial resentments and tribal resentments that had been stoked by these corrupt politicians, it all boiled over. And, and uh, I want to say 13 to 1,400 people lost their lives. 600,000 people were displaced. It was awful. It was terrible. And it was all because some leaders had this, it's my time to eat mentality. And here's what I learned. Violence, it doesn't begin with a sword. It begins in the heart. Violence begins in the heart. Now today we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about that because even though our country is very different from Kenya, in many ways we're seeing that same continuum at work, that same continuum from selfishness to violence. 
corruption, violence, selfishness, it's all a part of our world. And even though on the surface, many of us, I mean, we're good Christian people, we would never hurt a fly, right? We're not violent people, most of us, but in our hearts, I think in our hearts, many of us, we are kind of at war with the world as well. We also kind of have clenched fists right now. And we might say in our own hearts, if we're honest, it's my time to eat. So I want to talk about that. Now we are in week two of our series exploring the the book of Micah. And just as a real quick recap in case you missed last week, Micah was a prophet in Israel at a time when things were falling apart for the people of God. It was chaotic. It was, it was, it was a violent time. And from Micah's perspective, all of this, this collapse is happening because of the corruption and the injustice of the leaders of Israel and the people in power. And, and what was happening in the time was that the Assyrian Empire coming up from the north was working their way down and destroying one nation after another as they got closer and closer to Jerusalem, the heart of, of the, uh, the people of God, the heart of, of Judah. Now, he understood that, that this whole Assyrian invasion was directly linked to what was going on, the injustice and all of the corruption that was going on. And so his message as a prophet, he had basically a twofold message. To the oppressors, his message was, guys, you got to wake up because you are the ones who are causing this, this collapse of our, of our nation. And to the oppressed, he had a very different message. His message to them was, guys, there is hope. God's plans and his purposes will be fulfilled. They will come to fruition. Those are, that's his dual message. So you could kind of sum it up like this. Micah, he afflicts the comfortable and he comforts the afflicted. That's Micah in a nutshell right there. So last week, we looked at how he brought a message in rural Israel, in the the hill country of Judea. Remember the farmers stealing each other's land and all that stuff? Well, now we're going into the city, and we're going to see what Micah has to say to the leaders of Jerusalem itself. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at Micah, starting in chapter 3, verse 8. And um, while you're doing that, go ahead and grab a Bible. And I just want to remind you that this is Hebrew poetry, and in Hebrew poetry, it is very dense. It is very full of, of uh, beautiful imagery and, and provocative ideas. And so it is so much better, I promise it is, to have it open in front of you when we're reading it because you're going to start to see things that you might not catch if you're just listening to my voice. So I keep saying that. I know I'm probably just like, I'm probably just like trying to, trying to plow through a brick wall here, but I'm telling you, it's better if you've got it open in front of you. Okay, so here's what Micah has to say uh, in Jerusalem when he looks around at what he's seeing. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. I'm filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and you twist all that is right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't prophesy unless you're paid. Yet all of you claim to depend on the Lord. No harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. Well, because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Okay, As I've said before, the role of a prophet 
is to look around at the world and to see things the way that God sees them. So Micah, his job is to, to, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as he says in verse eight, his job is to look around, see the world through God's eyes, and then to speak truth about what he sees, okay, with the Spirit's help. So what does Micah see? When he looks at Jerusalem, what does he see? Well, look at verse nine. He says, listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and you twist all that is right. You are building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. Now, literally in Hebrew, he, he's saying you build Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. You build Zion with blood. Whoa, that's kind of intense. That's what he says. You're building Jerusalem with blood. What does he mean by this? Well, uh, Micah was a prophet. This is when we got to kind of talk about the world behind the text. Micah was a prophet during the 8th century BC. Now, Ironically enough, this was the same century where Assyria was invading and things were falling apart, but ironically enough, in that time period, Jerusalem was actually going through a pretty significant time of expansion. They were building new buildings and palaces and walls and a huge extra section of the city was built out. It got a lot bigger as a city. And so in, in this time of collapse, there was also a time of great growth. And normally, normally uh, during a time of, of prosperity like that, or at least it would seem like it's a time of prosperity, it'd be a good thing. And, and so you, you look at that and think, well, Jerusalem must be doing pretty well. King Hezekiah, who was the king of Israel during, uh, during the time that Micah was teaching, King Hezekiah he wanted to be the next Solomon. He wanted to be a builder. And so, yeah, you'd think, all right, well, so they're doing all right for themselves, except, except for how they were building so much so fast. There's a problem in the way that they were expanding. So here's what it, we kind of had to do a little bit of uh, investigative reporting here, but what it seems to be the case is that, um, well, historians and archaeologists tend to look at this time and they realize that at the same time as all this expansion was happening, there was also this influx of refugees. Refugees who were fleeing the war where Assyria was, was coming down. So Assyria was knocking out this nation and this nation and this nation and all these refugees were fleeing south and it looks like Jerusalem was just full to the gill with war refugees during this exact same time. So what we're, what we're able to kind of put together here is you look at that fact that Jerusalem is filled with these refugees and you, you combine that with the fact that the prophets, they've got a pretty negative assessment of how all this building is happening and what you realize very likely is that the rulers of Jerusalem were building so much so fast by putting all of these refugees to work in what amounted to, to slave labor or, or uh, indentured servitude. They were just cheap, easy labor. They are throwing them against their projects. For example, there's this one, I mean, genuinely, objectively spectacular project that they undertook in Jerusalem to dig a tunnel under the city to connect a spring all the way over to uh, where they could get the water, and it was called Hezekiah's Tunnel, and it's still to, there today. You can go see it. They're, it's pretty amazing. They en ended up uh, digging through a third of a mile of solid rock and connecting two sides of this tunnel with completely ancient technology, right? That's, it's incredible. It's a real achievement of the time, but how do you do that in the early Iron Age when they, they don't have power tools, they don't have drills? How do you get a tunnel dug from two sides of the city a third of a mile underground? You know how you do it? 
You throw in worker after worker after worker at it to chip away in the dark, in the, in the, the smoke, in the, in the dust, and to just do it as, as if they're expendable. It's free, cheap labor that you just force to go through that. That's how you do it. You build it the way that the Egyptians built the pyramids. Hmm. Now, it's an amazing thing that they built, but according to Micah, they were building it with blood. They were building it, these leaders were building it by saying, it's my time to eat. It's your time to suffer. Now, I'm going to say this again. Israel was meant to be something very different than this. Israel was meant from the very beginning to be a shining example of God's blessing for the world, right? It, it was supposed to be a place where everyone on earth could look and see God's justice, God's peace, God's abundance at work. It was supposed to be the, the beacon on the hill that everybody could look to and be like, that's the kind of life that I want to have. But instead, look what it had become. It had become a land of corruption, of injustice, of violence. It had become a land, not of blessing, but a land of the curse, where the vulnerable, like war refugees, were not cared for, but exploited. The powerful in Jerusalem thought that they could take their blessing by force. They, they're like, I want to be blessed and so I'm going to take it by force. We talked about this last week. They thought that they could dominate other people and, and you know, use violence to enjoy abundance for themselves. But Micah, he's not having any of that. He wants them to understand the truth. You will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. And you leaders of Jerusalem, if you're going to act with an it's my time to eat attitude, it's going to lead to hunger for all, including yourself. Violence begins in the heart, as I said. And if your, your heart is at war with the world, if you're living with a violent approach, then the world will be at war with you. It's just like a, a law of our universe. Violence leads to more violence. It just does. Which is why Micah says in verse 12, because of you, you leaders, because of you, Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. All these fancy new buildings and, and, and palaces and walls that you're so proud of, they're going to be overgrown. The, the temple itself, where God's presence is with the people, that temple's going to be destroyed. You will reap what you sow. You build Jerusalem with blood and you will find blood at the end of that story. Unless you're willing to give up your violent ways, violence will be your end or as Jesus famously put it those who use the sword will die by the sword that's how it works so Micah's essentially trying to say this look if the people of Israel if they want to live into the blessing of God it's not going to happen through violence they've got to find another way so that's the, the sad passage. In a moment, we're going to look at the happy passage because that's how Micah goes. Remember, he afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. We're going to look at the other side. Before we do that, though, I want to just take a second and, and bring us into the picture. I want to talk about the world in front of the text. That's our world. Um, because, again, it is so easy to read these kinds of things and think, oh, interesting. That's an ancient world, an ancient problem. It has very little to do with our lives today. But, but let me ask this. Is our world really that different from ancient Israel? You look at some of the stuff that's going on here. Is it really that different? I mean, just 
Look at the news this week. I mean, we've got the Middle East on the brink of war again. Uh, We've got practically what feels like weekly mass shootings in our country. So many that we're not even, we're not even bothered about them anymore. It's just, oh yeah, no, it's over there this year. I mean, this month, it's like crazy. You've got corruption in our country too. You've got injustice, neglect of the poor. I mean, this is all very familiar from what we just read. But even more than that, violence is not just out there. It's not just a a national problem. I believe that if we're honest, again, we would say that many, if not most of us, have a level of violence in our hearts right now. Now again, it doesn't always translate to physical violence, okay? The the definition of violence is not just physical. There is a kind of use of, of force to overwhelm someone else. That is violence whether or not anyone's physically harmed. But internally, in, in our hearts, so many of us have a posture of clenched fists. We are at war with our world, aren't we? For example, so many of us have a, a, a hair trigger when someone cuts us off on the road or, or you know, our flights get changed unexpectedly or something like that. We're, we're out there yelling at flight attendants because of our, of our hair trigger. Or, or some of us, uh, we, we hate people. We hate people that that we disagree with ideologically or or politically, and we actually celebrate their failures. Think about that. We we, we celebrate their failures. We've got clenched fists. Or we, we interpersonally, we gossip and we rage about people who've gotten on our bad side. To anyone who will listen, we're going to tell you everything that you want to know about how bad that person is. That's what we do. Or... We know what we deserve. We've got some entitlement going on. We know what our family deserves. And you better not stand in my way or I'll go to war with you. I'll burn you to the ground if you stand in my way. It's my time to eat. And you better not get my order wrong. We live with clenched fists. We, we are at war with our world. Just think about the week that you just had. Okay, I know some of you are probably like, I don't know if this is true for me. Just think about this. And you don't have to tell anybody, but in your own mind, think back over the last seven days, where have you had clenched fists towards the people around you? Where has your posture been one of of, of combat and violence, even if it's not physical? Where have you been at war with your world? Think about it. Because I promise, if if we're all honest with ourselves, almost every one of us is going to have some ideas of exactly how that's been true for us. This is a problem for us because just like the ancient Israelites, we are going to reap what we sow. That's how it works. Violence always leads to more violence in one form or another. So what do we do? What are we going to do about this? How do we change uh, the violence in our hearts? Well, let's take a look at what Micah says next. Let's look at the happy passage because it's very much connected to what we just read. So you got the backdrop. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 1. The backdrop from chapter 3 is is Jerusalem at risk of being destroyed. The temple's going to be completely demolished. And then Micah turns on a dime and he says this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, the Lord's house is the temple, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all. The most important place on earth, it will be raised above all the other hills and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. 
His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. Though the nations around us follow their idols, we, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. Okay. Let's do a little bit of work with uh, the world of the text here. And the world of the text is how one passage of Scripture kind of speaks to another passage of Scripture. If you look at the the sad part and the happy part of this together, you see this this sort of uh, cause and effect of violence at work. So, for example, uh, it starts with, in the first, in Micah 3, you've got the vulnerable being exploited. You've got an enemy nation invading Jerusalem and you ultimately have the holy place destroyed. That's cause and effect. But here, in Micah 4, that flow is reversed. Think about it. The holy place is now exalted. It's the, the most important place on earth. The nations are coming, but they're not invading. They're coming to worship. And you've got the vulnerable living in peace. So this reversed flow, this is the seed of hope that Micah is is planting in the minds of his hearers. This is the comfort that he's bringing to the afflicted. There ultimately will be peace. It will happen. God's promised this. It will happen. But how? How is this flow supposed to be reversed? How does that that take place? What makes this situation different from what we just read before? Well, the answer, at least a a part of our answer is in verse 2. Take a look. Take a look. Uh, He says, the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. Now that word, teaching, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word Torah. Torah. It is the name of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But it's also a word that's used to describe God's instructions for how to experience his blessing. His blessing. Uh, it's, the Torah is, is the path that we should walk if we want to return to Eden. If we want to experience blessing, if we want the, the abundance and, and justice and life and all of the things that God promises us, we should walk the path of Torah. And so in Micah's vision here, every other nation is coming streaming to Jerusalem to learn Torah. They're coming to learn the path of life. And as a result of this, verse 3, as a result of them coming to learn Torah, violence and oppression come to an end. This is a beautiful passage. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Now, I asked on Instagram yesterday and like three quarters of, of, of you who responded said, you don't know what a plowshare is, so let me tell you what a plowshare is. A plow, first of all, is a thing, a device that you'll use to kind of uh, put a furrow in the ground and it'll turn the soil over so you can plant seeds there and, and break up the hard soil. Well, a plowshare is a specific part of the plow. It's like a blade on the bottom of the plow that actually does the cutting in the earth. So you can imagine taking a sword and repurposing it as a part of a plow, as this plowshare. And a pruning hook, it's a little easier to imagine, but a pruning hook is just a sharp tool at the end of a, a pole or on it with a handle that you can use to prune branches on fruit trees. All right, that's a, that's a pruning hook. And so what's happening here, in other words, 
is that in this world where everybody's listening to the Torah, the teachings of Yahweh, weapons of war, swords and spears, they have no purpose anymore. They're literally useless. And so everybody's turning these, these useless things into something that's actually going to help with farming. So in other words, the destructive is becoming constructive. Tools of death become tools of life. And I love this. In verse 4, says, everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. Everybody enjoying their own fruit, fruit trees, that sounds kind of familiar. That sounds like the Eden ideal, doesn't it? We're back to everybody, you know, gardening and eating fruit off of trees and stuff like that with no fear. That, that's Eden. What you see here is that the result of, of global peace is not just an end to bloodshed and suffering. It's not just that. No, it's actually the coming of abundance for everyone. The absence of fear. So what is Micah trying to say here? Is this just, is this idealism? Is he just being, uh, I don't know, is this wishful thinking? Is that all he's doing right here? Well, no. No, I don't think it is. Because remember the context that Micah is speaking these words into. The context of this passage. Think about his world. His world was full of, of uh, unjust land grabs and invasions by enemy armies and refugees and injustice. Everybody was trying to take from everybody else. Right? That's his world. It's my time to eat. That was a scarcity mentality that he lived in. A scarcity mentality. If there's enough for you, then there's not enough for me. And so they take, they, they exploit one another, they approach their world with violence in their hearts. That's Micah's world. But here, in his vision of new creation, we see the, the truth, the opposite is true. In an absence of violence, there's enough for all. There's no need to, to take from others. It's our time to eat, in other words. That's Micah's vision. So how does this happen? How do we experience all of this? How is this vision supposed to come about? Well, I think the answer is in verse 5, where Micah brings this whole section back to his present. He says, though the nations around us, you know, all the other nations, the Assyrians, all of them, while they follow their idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. In other words, we will live out God's Torah. We will walk the path of Yahweh. All of this, all of this, this restoration begins with the people of God putting their foot down and saying, enough, enough. We will be the example of God's blessing that we were always meant to be. We will end oppression in our midst. We will care for the vulnerable. We will stop allowing violence to wreak havoc in our community. We will not say it's my time to eat anymore. It starts, it starts with the people of God becoming who they were meant to be, the example of God's blessing for the world. That's how this vision comes to pass. Now, surprisingly, Micah's words in this section of, of his prophecy, they actually did work, kind of. Uh, it's really rare. The prophets were mostly just ignored, but in this particular case, all that stuff that he said about, about Jerusalem being you know, plowed like an open field, the, 
King Hezekiah and the other leaders of Israel actually listened to Micah. And as a result, even though the Assyrian army got all the way down to the gates of Jerusalem, they changed their ways, they, they, they pleaded with God for mercy, they, they began trying to make some reforms, and as a result, the Assyrian army left. And they were spared, they were saved, which is incredible. Now, it lasted like a century, and like 115 years later, it was back to business as usual. Israel was still full of injustice, still full of corruption and all that stuff. And so eventually, Micah's vision at the end of chapter 3 did come true, uh, but it was at the hands of the Babylonians and not the Assyrians, but it still came true. But all that to say, it's interesting to think that when in that short period of time that they did change their ways, God spared them from destruction from the Assyrians. But ultimately, of course, Micah's global vision, this, this chapter four vision of, of swords hammered into plowshares, of, of nations no longer training for war, that whole vision, it remained a future dream. It's all in the future. So here's my big question for the day. Is it still future? Is this vision that Micah has, is, is this still someday, is this still off in the future? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, of course, it isn't fully realized. We've still got war and violence and, and, and all of that in our world, okay? It's still obviously not fully here. However, however, the idea of peace and, and of weapons of death being turned into instruments of life, the idea of the vulnerable sitting under their own fig tree without fear, I believe that this vision has already started to be realized. It's already happening in our world, in part, because I believe that the vision of Micah 4, it kicked off with the person of Jesus. Think about it, think about it. Jesus came to teach us the ways of Yahweh, as it says in verse two. Jesus is essentially the living embodiment of Torah. He is the, the living, breathing example of the path of life. And he showed us what it means to live into God's blessing completely. His kingdom, the, the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated, in that kingdom, Micah's vision is being lived out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oppression is being lifted. Abundance is springing up. Fear is disappearing, right? It's what we see when, when the church is at its, at its best. And think about this. From the moment that Jesus came onto the scene, people from every nation have come streaming to him to learn Torah. They've come to learn the path of life from every single nation. And of course, of course, Jesus taught and lived a lifestyle of radical nonviolence, both in his life and in his heart. It took a radically nonviolent person to allow the Romans and the Jewish leaders of the time to execute him on that cross. It was radically nonviolent. And he taught us to live the same way. Listen to what he taught us. To you who are willing to listen, I say this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now that is radical stuff that Jesus had to say. It's radical and yet it is exactly in line with Micah's vision of where our world is headed, isn't it? It's peace between enemies, abundance for all. 
this teaching of Jesus is God's blessing for humanity realized. But the twist that Jesus brings into all of this is that we don't wait for Micah 4 to happen. We make Micah 4 happen, whether the world is ready or not. We make it happen. We don't just stop saying, you know what, it's, it, it's not my time to eat anymore. We don't stop saying that. We also don't start saying, uh, it's our time to eat. You know what we say? It's your time to eat. That is the mentality that Jesus has asked us to live out. That's the approach that we are meant to have towards our world. We love our enemies whether or not they love us back. We hammer our swords into plowshares even if no one else will. And we ensure the abundance of others even if it seems like there isn't enough to go around. Though the nations around us follow idols, we will follow the Lord our God forever and ever. That is our call. We are the light of the world. It's time for the people of God to put our foot down and say enough. To say we will follow Torah. We will follow the path of life. We will be what God's people have always been meant to be. The blessing, the image of what it looks like to be blessed and to show our world what is possible through Jesus Christ. That's what we will be because that's who we are. If we want the dream of Micah 4 to be realized in this violent and chaotic time that we are living in, then we, Grace Church, you and me, we must walk the path that Jesus showed us, whether or not anyone around us is doing it. Radical nonviolence in our lives and in our hearts, just like Jesus taught us. We must replace our clenched fists with self-giving love. We must lay our lives down like Jesus And we trust that God's going to bring our our world abundance because of it. It's an act of trust. We don't wait for the world to change. We change it ourselves right here. Now, these are big ideas. I get it. This This is intense stuff. Honestly, this is the kind of thing that I want you to go and think about and chew on and talk about and wrestle with for a long time because this is not easy Uh, you know, easy stuff that's, here's the top three tips for how to go and do this today. No, this is like deep soul level stuff. So here's what I want to do, just because I know it's so deep, I know it's so big, I want to give you just a handle of something that you can chew on and think about, both right now and then throughout the rest of this week. I want to give you a question. In in a moment, we're going to have a song. I want you to think about it while we're hearing this song. And the question is this, on an individual level, if I am meant to represent God's blessing to the world, then what weapon in my heart needs to be transformed? I'll say that again. If I am meant to, be, uh, to, to represent God's blessing to the world, if I am in the light of the world and everyone is supposed to look to me to see what is possible, if that's me, then what weapon in my heart, what sword in my heart needs to be transformed into a plowshare? What, what weapon of death in my heart needs to be transformed into an instrument of life? I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal something to you in these times as you listen and ask this question of yourself. So let me pray for you and then we're gonna listen to this song and I want you to listen to what the Spirit has to say. Father God, As we ask ourselves this question, I trust that you will reveal the truth to us, that we will be able to see how in our own hearts we have uh, clenched so tightly to our own entitlement, 
how we have clenched tightly to our anger, how we have clenched tightly to the weapons that, that put us at war with our world. Father, you showed us the way of life through your son, Jesus. And I would ask that in these moments, your Holy Spirit would show us what's our next step along that path. What weapon in our heart needs to be transformed so that we can show our world what is possible in your love and in your presence. So Father, we pray that you will speak. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church. And the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.